0: Eric Shesky's Weekly You Demon. This dude abides. He's never out of his element. So sit back with a sarsaparilla and enjoy. These six traits make a person a Gnostic. I subtitled this A Diagnostic of the Gnostic. Actually, that's courtesy of my youngest daughter, Tess. thought that was pretty funny. Well, that's pretty good, so went with it. All right, Eric Vogelin was to modern Gnosticism what Newt Rockne was to Notre Dame football. Rockne didn't start the ND football program, and Vogelin didn't discover modern Gnosticism, but they took their subjects to much higher levels. It was actually the Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, he was supposedly the first person to draw parallels between the ancient Gnostic heresy and modern theories in Prometheus. That was 1937. It was an examination of modern German thought. And then Albert Camus did the same thing or a similar thing in his book The Rebel, 1951, and I've read parts of The Rebel. It's, it's difficult. I um, can't even find von Balthasar's Prometheus, frustrating, but I'll get, through them. I'll get through both of them eventually. Um, be that as it may, Vogelin took the strain of thought much further in his book, The New Science of Politics, 1952. The book became a time cover story, and voila, Gnosticism was in the limelight, at least among nerds. Granted, later in life, Vogelin said he wasn't sure Gnosticism was the best term to use, and thought perhaps it received too much attention. But he didn't remotely conclude that the term didn't work. I mean, far from it. His last popular, halfway popular book, none of his books I guess, really popular, but his most popular and accessible book, Science, Politics, and Gnosticism, came out in 1968 when he was 67 years old. And he was still using the term and carefully examined Gnosticism. So he clearly, I mean, far from abandoning it, he still thought it was a good term. Okay, now here's the thing. We're going to be looking hard at Gnosticism probably for three, five, six, I don't know, Podcasts. I have a big podcast episode, by the way. If you go back and you mine through the old Weekly Demon episodes, I dedicated four or five segments to Gnosticism. I may just put all those together and put them out at once, but no matter. For now, let's just look at Gnosticism. And what you need to be careful of is just don't accuse everyone you disagree with of being a Gnostic. Here's the thing. Gnosticism is both precise and vague. It's vague in the sense that it touches on the Tao and transcendence. But it's precise in the sense that specific characteristics need to come together in order to keyhole someone as a Gnostic. We all know we tend to label our opponents. If we can label a person, we can dismiss a person. It's practically a trope that doesn't even need to be mentioned. But most of us do it anyway. You know, ah, he's just a Gnostic. F him. (laughs) Vogel himself expressed concern that we would overuse the Gnostic label to characterize anyone we disagree with in politics, thereby watering it down to the point that it's no longer useful for analyzing the modern political world. Now, he didn't need to be concerned. We, we do that with fascist. <laughs> Everyone's a fascist. But that's what he was afraid of. Just like everyone throws around the term fascist now, he was concerned everyone would throw around the word Gnostic. Still... Uh, uh, people do use the term Gnostic. People like Vogelin tend to use Gnosticism the same way. I mean, a little while ago, I read this idiot who claimed Donald Trump as a Gnostic. I mean, Trump might be wrong. He might be a demagogue. He might be a lot of unfortunate things. That's not the point. But he was not a freaking Gnostic. He's not even close. He's possibly the furthest thing from a Gnostic we have, as as will become clear <laughs> as we work through these things. And I say he's not even on the Gnostic spectrum, and I'll be talking about the spectrum later. Anyway, there is a thing they called the Gnostic attitude. In science, politics, and Gnosticism, Vogelin set forth the six traits, six traits that together, quote-unquote, reveal the Gnostic attitude. Now, if you go to the show notes, I have in the footnotes to the show notes, I have all six traits laid out in Vogelin's words. Um, And I'm going to apologize. It's dry stuff. But that's not my fault. (laughs) They're Vogel's words. But I'd say it's not even Vogel's fault. I mean, we're dealing with a subject. Oh, with a difficult subject, rather. And he was breaking a lot of new ground. He probably didn't have the time or possibly the personality to water it down for popular consumption. And to be honest, that's why I'm trying to do it in these series of essays and podcasts. I mean, I want to be the Vogel, and Vulgal, <laughs> the Vogel and Vulgarizer. And I'm starting by trying to recast the six Gnostic traits in the framework of the Existence Strikes Back project. If you only listen to the podcast, if you go to Existence Strikes Back substack or go to the Daily Demon The Existence Strikes Back page, um, you'll see all these, about 50 essays I've written so far, probably around fifty to 60,000 words in this project. Okay, now shifting back these six traits, recasting them in the Existence Strikes Back project framework, it's been hard. I mean really hard. I've rewritten the six traits five times in the past week getting ready for this podcast. And prior to that, I'd probably rewritten it 10 times. That might be an exaggeration, but not much. And I'll probably keep working on it, but I think I have it close enough for now. And I might tweak it as the Existence Strikes Back project unfolds, but Vogelin continually tweaked his analysis as years went on, so maybe I'm in good company. Anyway, here are the six characteristics that, taken together, and again, taken together, reveal the nature of the Gnostic attitude. This is my take, my framing. Number one, the Gnostic is dissatisfied or what I call existential dissatisfaction, anxiety, and unhappiness. Two, belief that the dissatisfaction is because the world is poorly organized. Three, belief that number two, the dissatisfaction can be remedied, which will result in one being remedied. So you, you think that, hey, we can change how the world is organized and then I'll stop being so unhappy. Number four, a rejection of the reality spectrum in the sense that by rejecting a part of the reality spectrum, the Gnostic hopes to, to affect his or her salvation through historical processes. Five, belief that he or she, or the movement or cause, can affect number three, which is <laughs> the belief that the world can be organized better than it is by nature, or God, or the Tao, or whatever it is. And then number six, belief that special knowledge gives the ability To transition the world, change the world by implementing the flawed understanding of reality. Again, this has got to be pretty hard to listen to. My apologies. Go to the show notes page. You can read them for yourself. All right. Now I want to apply these, and I'm going to use Prometheus bound. See, Prometheus was the arch Gnostic, at least in literature and mythology. And I'm going to dedicate a podcast to each of the six characteristics, although one and two might be combined, the way the podcast is coming together right now. But I'll have four or five essays slash podcasts dedicated, one to each characteristics. But now I want to look at Aeschylus' Prometheus Bound, which if you go to the show notes page, you see I've done a podcast on this already, but I'm going to shift my focus here. And I think Prometheus Bound is a great starting point to vulgarize Vogeland. I mean, one, it's a well known work. English translations are available in the public domain for anyone who wants to read it for himself. And it's short. I read it in about an hour or reread it, getting ready for these podcasts in about an hour. And I think Vogeland would approve of my approach. I mean, he focused on. Prometheus Bound twice, first in the World of the Polis in 1957, and again in Science, politi- Politics, and Gnosticism in 1968. So he was a big uh, fan. I thought it was pretty telling. Now, before jumping into this, a quick note. When you're reading or thinking about Prometheus Bound, it's crucial to remember that Zeus is the reality spectrum. It's the divine order, the whole shoot and match, all of existence. And Prometheus is any person who rejects that reality spectrum. So you need to kind of keep that in mind to understand how the Gnostic works in his own mind. Zeus, reality spectrum, Prometheus, the Gnostic. And here is a summary of the play then, applying those terms. Prometheus was the unhappy, restless man who believed his unhappiness resulted from a world poorly organized by Zeus and that he would be content if the world were properly organized. Prometheus carried out his plans without regard to Zeus and insisted that his plans would bring about a proper world because he possessed ancient and immense intelligence. Ancient because he was older than Zeus and probably smarter than Zeus. I'll rephrase that again. Here's another way of rephrasing Prometheus Bound. The Gnostic is the unhappy restless man who believes that his unhappiness results from a worldly poorly organized and that he could be happy if only the world were properly organized. And by the way, it's important, properly organized, in his mind, what he thinks it should be, not properly as a practical matter. We have no say on how the world is organized. It's it's given to us. We receive it. Anyway, um, so he thinks he could be happy if only the world were properly organized. He carries out his plans without regard to the reality spectrum and insists that his plans will bring about a proper organization of reality because he possesses the tools, intelligence, know-how, method to do it. Now I'm going to rephrase it even further, condensing it to about half the length of those other rephrasings. The Gnostic is a malcontent who thinks his discontent comes from outside himself, reality, and that he would be happy if reality were organized in the Gnostic's preferred manner. The Gnostic believes reality can be changed, and that he or a leader or a movement has the tools to do it. All right, we're going to be unpacking all that later, but. I'm Please bear with me as you go through this Gnosticism in the coming months. And trust me, it's riveting stuff. I will make it exciting. Well, <laughs> at least not boring. I might even be able to incorporate a few sexual references for you <laughs> lascivious listeners out there. Because Gnostics have an unfortunate tendency to be perverts. And... Um, they want to mold basically, and, and again, you start thinking, Wow, this is all <laughs> 20th century thought. They start molding their quote unquote truth, their version of reality to fit their sexual proclivities. So, um, perversion and narcissism often go hand in hand, you know, like you know, hot chocolate and vanilla. So, anyway, I'll try to bring that stuff in to make it more fully accessible and entertaining. So, bear with me. Hoping you're enjoying it. I have gotten good feedback. I think people are very interested in the subject and they ought to be. It's crucial. I hope to be tying this into Ian McGilchrist's cutting edge. By the way, I think Vogel is probably the the most um, novel and original, you know, most original thinker of the 20th century that was crucial. And there are others as well, but he, he kind of broke new ground. I think McGilchrist is doing the same thing in the 21st century. So I think together they have a lot of things to say, and there's going to be a lot of parallel. And I hope to bring all that stuff forward. But anyway, as always, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.